Martin Luther said of justification by faith alone that it was the article upon which the church stands or falls. John Calvin said it was the hinge upon which everything else turns. And J.I. Packer of our own day said that justification was the atlas that carries the whole of the Christian faith on its shoulders. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and be turning again to the book of Romans, Romans um, chapter 3. And this morning, I want to look with you together at verses 21 through 26, the title of the message, God's Saving Righteousness. And I can tell you there is no greater topic that I would want to preach on than the saving righteousness of God. So I want you to stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's word. I'll pick up in verse 21. Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You may be seated and let's ask the Lord for his blessing as we look at this text together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. And now we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to apply your word to our hearts and our lives as we look at the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our prayer would be is that everyone in here would look to faith in Christ, that they would rest in his finished work, that we would come away with something of a greater and deeper understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We pray this for our sakes and for your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have just read to you what could be the most important paragraph ever written. And if it's the most important paragraph ever written, then it certainly is the most important paragraph ever written in sacred Scripture. Verses 21 through 26 speaks to us about God's saving righteousness through Christ. And if you notice, for the first time in Romans, Paul speaks forcefully about the doctrine of justification. He uses that word for the first time in verse 24 where he says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And as you well know, during the Reformation, the doctrine of justification by faith alone was the rally cry. 
It was Christians under this doctrine of justification who came together and recovered the gospel, which was underneath, we could say, the rubble of church tradition. And that is why the Reformation was really a revolution of sorts. Martin Luther said of justification by faith alone that it was the article upon which the church stands or falls. John Calvin said it was the hinge upon which everything else turns. And J.I. Packer of our own day said that justification was the atlas that carries the whole of the Christian faith on its shoulders. If you remember, we ended back in verse 20 last week. For by works of the law, no human being, Paul says, will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is Paul's way of informing us that our justification before God cannot and will not be found in any righteousness the sinner possesses on his own. Therefore, we need another righteousness. This was a righteousness that Luther referred to as an alien righteousness, a righteousness apart from us, a righteousness outside of ourselves, extra nos, that is the Latin term for apart from or outside. And Luther was also famous for another Latin phrase, simul ustus et peccator. Simul is the Latin word for at the same time. Ustus just means righteousness, et means and, and peccator means sinner. So this phrase, simul ustus et Peccator means that at the very same time we are righteous and still a sinner. That is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it is a legal term, justification is. It has to do with a legal declaration that when the sinner places his or her trust in Jesus Christ alone, he, he or she receives the imputed righteousness of Christ and they are declared to be righteous while at the same time a sinner. That is what Paul speaks about in our passage this morning and he even speaks about more than just that. To sort of review for you, so far, Paul has shown that all classes of people, both Jews and Gentiles, have been indicted in God's courtroom on charges of insurmountable crimes. That all without exception, every human being to the last man, Jew and Gentile, has broken God's law and is deserving of God's judgment. If you remember, in verses 9 through 12, Paul said that, we have already charged, that is a legal term, we have been charged or indicted in the court of law that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. So in verses 21 through 26, Paul now moves from the condemnation of sinners, that is the wrath of God revealed, which we've looked at all the way back from chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of chapter 3 and verse 20. The wrath of God has been revealed. The condemnation of sinners is now being transitioned to the subject of the salvation of sinners. We move from the wrath of God revealed and condemnation to the righteousness of God revealed and salvation. And this is seen beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3, going all the way through chapter 8 and verse 39. 
If you remember several weeks ago when we began our study in the book of Romans, one of the reasons that Paul writes to these Roman Christians is to raise money for a mission trip that he has planned to Spain. And so, he needs to be clear about the complexity of the gospel, leaving no stone unturned, so that the Romans will willingly support him financially. And as a result, we have the clearest and most detailed, inspired explanation of the gospel right here in the book of Romans. And it begins in verse 21. And Paul, as he writes, knows that in order to have a right view of the gospel, which is critical for our salvation, we must begin to grasp the concept of the righteousness of God. That is to say that God's saving righteousness through Christ Jesus is the very heart of the Christian faith. And let me just tell you this morning, if your heart does not beat with the rhythm of an orthodox gospel, then the vital signs of life have disappeared. You are still dead in your trespasses and sin. Because Paul has been clear that all, universally, all of us are sinners standing condemned in God's heavenly court with several indictments read publicly for all to hear. But what we learned this morning is that because of what Christ has done for sinners at the cross, those who place their trust in Christ can face the court with Christ as their defense attorney. That is what Paul is getting at. And I can borrow words from another writer of Scripture, the Apostle John. He says, but if anyone does sin, and it's clear that we all do, Paul has made that clear, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so understand this morning, when Jesus Christ is our advocate, when Jesus Christ is our defense attorney, the verdict verdict rendered is not guilty. And even better than that, we are declared righteous. Why? Not because God's wrath doesn't hang over us. Not because our sin isn't that bad. Not because we we are not under the sentence of death. We are. We are guilty. But because in the court of heaven, Jesus Christ stands tied together with the believer in Jesus Christ. And His righteousness covers us. His righteousness covers us from the full fury of God's wrath. But the question is, how is that possible? Well, as I said, in perhaps the most important paragraph in all of the Bible, Paul explains the saving righteousness of God in Christ in verses 21 through 26. Here he tells us that God is righteous, man is sinful, but Christ is saving. And there are really three angles from which we can view God's saving righteousness. First of all, Paul gives to us a righteousness revealed in verses 21 and 22. This speaks about justification in heaven's court. Secondly, a righteousness required. This speaks about redemption from Egypt's court, verses 23 and 24, and us being liberated from sin. And third, a righteousness reinforced. This speaks about propitiation at the temple's court, verses 25 and 26, when, as it were, the last temple activity, the last sacrifice was conducted, not on the temple mount, but on Mount Calvary, as a once-for-all sacrifice for sinners propitiating the wrath of God. 
So these are the three angles that Paul uses to describe the saving righteousness of God. Let's begin number one in verses 21 and 22 with a righteousness revealed. And this speaks about justification in heaven's court. The text turns from the darkness of sin and condemnation, notice, to the light of the gospel and the hope of salvation, marked out by those English words in verse 21, but now. Now that is a pivotal contrast of massive and eternal proportions. But now, in spite of God's condemnation, verse 20, in spite of the fact that we are all guilty of breaking the law, but now, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And as we're going to see the righteousness of God spoken about at this point in the discussion, has to do more specifically with the saving righteousness of God found in Christ. This is speaking in concept about justification. The word justified is not used till verse 24, but Paul is already warming up the gospel engine to get us to that great doctrine. And Paul says the righteousness of God, please note, has been manifested. Some translations translate it, has been revealed. But the idea is, is the same, that God has revealed or manifested His righteousness in the person of Christ Jesus. And you say, what is the point of mentioning this revelation, this manifestation? Well, there are really several layers of meaning. First of all, there is a logical meaning in the sense that Paul is continuing the development of his argument from verse 20 that all sinners, all are sinners, and therefore, notice verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. This is true unless God intervenes, Paul says. And Paul says God has intervened. But now, that's God's intervention, the righteousness of God has been revealed or manifested apart from the law. There is a logical contrast here between trying to justify your sins, verse 20, by the works of the law, and the way God tells us we are justified, verse 21, through the righteousness of God that has been revealed apart from the law. That the path to heaven comes through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father but through Him. It's not found in us. And because this is a logical sort of revelation flowing from Paul's argumentation, it means that it is also a personal revelation. That Paul is telling whoever reads this, you and I, that God's saving righteousness which has been revealed in Christ and has been declared in the gospel is our only way to receive heaven, to receive forgiveness of sins. It doesn't come by works of the law. It doesn't come by giving charity to the poor or through our morality or through our rituals or through our religiosity. It comes by grace. For example, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or chapter 4 and verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. Paul is the great proclaimer of this doctrine of justification. 
Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because Paul says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Or again in Galatians 3, For all who rely on the works of the law, Paul says, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things in the book of the law and do them. In other words, we have an obligation to obey the law, but we have to obey the law perfectly. And Paul says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11 He is quoting there Habakkuk 2.4, which if, remember, if you remember in Romans 1.17, he also quoted Habakkuk 2.4, The righteous shall live by faith. That's why I said in Ephesians 2.9 that salvation is by grace, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And Paul wasn't shy about speaking about his own testimony. It involved him looking to Christ in faith, Philippians 3.9, to be found in Him, Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, an alien righteousness, extra notes, a righteousness outside of himself. And so Paul would also say in Titus 3.5 that He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. So the revelation of this righteousness is logical. It's flowing from Paul's argument. And it's also personal. Paul wants all of humanity to recognize this. But also note, this revelation is chronological. When Paul says in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, he is referring to a strategic and purposeful eternal plan of God and the secret counsel of God at, at an appointed time, at the appointed hour, where God's righteousness would be revealed. You say, when was that? Well, I'll quote to you Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, that is the date God had marked in His heavenly calendar, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9, the power of God saved us and caused us to, to a, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That phrase, has been manifested, is in the perfect tense in Greek, which means it refers to something that was done in the past but has effects leading right up into the present. The righteousness of God is still proclaimed, is still being manifested, is still being revealed that God is calling sinners not to obey the law to earn salvation but to look to the righteousness that is found in Christ. Now, when Paul speaks about the law in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, if you've been with us, you understand that he's speaking not only about special revelation, that is Mosaic law that was given to the Jewish nation, but also the law that was given to the Gentiles, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the law of God written on hearts. Paul is saying this law was never meant to save us. So at the appointed time, God's righteousness was revealed, God's righteousness was manifested to save us. A plan that was in eternity past, through the person of Christ. This is not some divine afterthought. 
The fruit of the gospel doesn't stem from the fruit of the tree when man ate of it. God's plan for righteousness to be found in Christ extends all the way back to his secret counsels. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And the evidence that God's plan has been revealed from eternity that His righteousness would be manifested is found throughout the pages of the Old Testament. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 21, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That phrase, the law and the prophets, is a summarized expression. Jesus used it, for example, to speak about as a whole, the testimony of the Old Testament. And here Paul says, the testimony of the Old Testament bears witness to this plan of God to reveal righteousness or salvation, not through the law, but in Jesus Christ. So in one sense, God's saving righteousness, verse 20, is apart from the law. In the sense that obeying the law doesn't save anybody because nobody can perfectly obey it. But Paul is saying in verse 21, there's a sense in which the law does bear witness to this revelation of God's saving righteousness. First of all, if you skip back up into verse 20, the law of God is valuable because through the law, Paul says, comes the knowledge of sin. So the law of God reveals our sin. The law of God is also valuable because the book of the law, the first five books of Scripture, the Pentateuch, the entire sacrificial system, a blueprint, is given. This entire sacrificial system. Paul is saying the law, the section of the Old Testament, the law, bears witness to God's saving righteousness. You say, how? Well, simple. Because every time a man took his sacrifice, whether a ram, a goat, a bull, or a bird to the temple, hands were laid on that animal, sins were confessed, and the animal was killed. And in effect, that was an act of faith whereby the sinner was acknowledging that his righteousness was not good enough, that he needed a substitute to pay for his sin. In essence, that Old Testament saint was looking forward in faith to the cross and the Lamb of God that would be slain there. So the law told him to do that. Therefore, the law bore witness to God's saving righteousness in picture form. So then you ask, verse 21, how do the prophets bear witness to God's saving righteousness? And there are hundreds of verses in the Old Testament that tell us about this. I'll give you the most familiar, which encapsulates the essence of what the prophet's message was. Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every man to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. That is the future Messiah, the iniquity of us all. He died for sinners. So please understand this morning that every time the gospel of God's saving righteousness is proclaimed, to borrow the language of chapter 1, verse 17, every time it is revealed from faith to faith, it has saving effects. The gospel of God's saving righteousness in Christ has been revealed. It continues to be revealed with power. 
It is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. World without end. The gospel never changes. The times of man change. The faithfulness of the church may change. The message of the church may dilute the gospel. The message of the church may bury the gospel under church traditions. But the gospel has always been there. And it's found on every page in the Old Testament. And also, this doctrine of justification by faith alone, found in the saving righteousness of God, therefore is not something newly discovered. The church didn't start at the Reformation. Paul didn't discover the doctrine of justification by faith, and neither did Luther, and neither did Calvin, and neither did John MacArthur. Paul is saying in verse 21, it is taught from cover to cover in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it teaches us that the ground of our justification has never been, could never be, and will never be grounded in our own merit. It is dependent upon the faithfulness or the obedience of Jesus Christ. And that's what I think Paul is alluding to, even if in a subtle way, In verse 22, notice your Bibles. He goes on to say, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. As already discussed in the many verses that I've already read, the righteousness of God mentioned here in verse 22, Paul now says, is received through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for, Paul reiterates, there is no distinction. So you may think of it like this. Just as there's no difference or no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, there's no distinction between any of us in here this morning because we're all sinners. In the same vein, there is no distinction for all who believe in Christ. They are equally given the same amount of righteousness that covers them to deliver them from the wrath of God. There is no distinction. And so Paul's main point in verse 22, keeping with the flow and purpose of the passage, is that Jesus Christ alone is the object of our faith. He is the object of our belief. Salvation is not attained by just a general belief in God. Salvation doesn't come because you pray to a general God in the skies or the heavens or because you believe God is mighty or because you affirm that God can perform miracles. Paul says nothing here about faith generally speaking. It is faith in Christ. It is belief in Jesus who is the object and therefore a legitimate Savior. Paul says nothing here about faith plus works. It's about faith alone in Christ alone. That, and here's Paul's point in verses 21 and 22, justification in heaven's court can only happen if Jesus Christ pleads our case as our advocate. That is Paul's point. His righteousness becomes ours, our sin becomes his, and God remains just. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he takes our sin We take his righteousness by faith. That is the simple gospel. And if you understand the gospel to to be anything but that, then you don't have an orthodox or biblical understanding of the gospel. It is faith plus nothing. It is faith in Christ by which we receive the saving righteousness of God. However, it is possible 
that Paul is saying more in verse 22. Let me ask you a question. What prevents us from claiming that our faith or belief in Christ is a work? Well, we could go to places like Ephesians 2.8, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a gift. What is the it in Ephesians 2.8? It, it, it is the faith. God grants us the faith to believe. But another answer may be found in a closer analyzation of verse 22. Notice the word faith. It is the Greek word pistis. And the Greek phrase is pisteos Jesu Christu. Now most of the time translators will translate that as faith in Jesus Christ. That means they're translating it as an objective genitive. But many commentators believe that it could be translated as a subjective genitive, in which case you would translate it as the faith of Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The faith that Jesus exercises. I think there's some support for that sort of argument. First of all, because notice the verse again, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ and then Paul, it seems, is redundant for all who believe. He says salvation comes through faith twice. Through faith in Jesus Christ and then for all who believe. It seems to be a little redundant. So maybe faith of Jesus Christ should be translated here. There's an example of this with another Greek phrase. If you turn with me back to Romans 3.3, 3, what if someone faithful, Paul says, does their faithlessness nullify, notice it, the faithfulness of God? Pistis tu theo. The same sort of Greek construction. And when it speaks there about the faithfulness of God, it's not speaking about faith in God, it's speaking about the faith of God, the faithfulness of God. And so it could be in verse 22, when Paul says that salvation comes through faith, He's speaking about the faith or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the way we receive His faithfulness is by believing. This, I think, has the strength of supporting verses like Romans 5.19. Whereas by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, or we could say faithfulness, the many will be made righteous you do understand that the faithfulness of Christ was necessary in order for you to have the opportunity to demonstrate faith in Jesus. And there are other places which refer to the act of obedience of Christ, His faithfulness. For example, the author of Hebrews says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, he had to become human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful High priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of his people. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to say, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus Christ was faithful to the plan of the Father. Jesus Christ was faithful to the law of God. He was perfectly obedient to the law of God. So there may be an allusion here in verse 22 to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Or we could say the faithfulness of God in sending Jesus Christ. Either way, 
mark it, a right standing with God. Justification is dependent on the faithfulness of God sending the Son in eternity past, the faithfulness of Christ obeying the law of God to provide an opportunity which is sovereignly linked to our ability by God to place faith in Christ. The point is, from beginning to end and all points in between, salvation is all of God. And that is the only way anyone will be justified in the heavenly courts. You are not saved because of your religious heritage. You are not saved through church attendance. You are not saved by reading your Bible. You are not saved by confessing your sins to a priest. You are not saved through baptism. You are not saved through any other means than the righteousness of God which comes through the faithfulness of Jesus for all who believe. For all who place faith in Jesus Christ. Now that is the first angle from which Paul tells us we can view God's sovereign saving righteousness. But there's a second angle. Uh, Paul moves from this righteousness revealed, which speaks about justification in heaven's court, number two, to a righteousness required. This speaks about redemption from Egypt's court. And we see here in verses 23 and 24 the word redemption, which speaks about liberation or deliverance. Continuing his thoughts on God's saving righteousness, Paul explains how righteousness is required to stand before God. Notice verse 23. You're familiar with it. Paul says, For, I'm going to explain. Here's why you need His righteousness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here Paul is repeating what he has said throughout Romans. As sinners, because all have sinned, everyone to a man, everyone falls short. The Greek verb there literally means to lack. And what is it that we all lack as sinners? Paul says, the glory of God. And to borrow the language of verse 22 again, There is no distinction between us and everyone else. We all fall short of the glory of God. What exactly is the glory of God? Well, the psalmist says that God created man as special above all his creatures, didn't he? Indeed, everything God created... Nothing came close to the creation of man. Psalm 8 even tells us, God, you have made him, that is man, a little lower than the heavenly beings. That's not too bad, huh? And crowned man with glory and honor. And then the psalmist goes on to say, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, all of your creation. You have put all things under his feet. And the psalmist goes on to say that man is over all creatures, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea. That the crowning of man with glory and honor was something God did. And when you go back to the Genesis account, the intimacy whereby God stoops down in the dirt He spoke everything else into existence, but he gets dirty to create man from the dust of the ground. 
He forms man tenderly with his hands. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, God still does that. In the wombs of our mothers, he forms our inward parts and our souls know it very well. We are fearfully and wonderfully made this intimate picture of God bestowing glory and honor. But what happened in the flower of our youth? We lost our purity and innocence. Instead of honoring God, we disobeyed God. Instead of glorifying Him, we dishonored Him. And instead of worshiping Him, we believed the lie of the creature and became idolaters. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 25, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. I believe that is a reference back to Genesis. The creature of the serpent became the one we were in bondage to and that we bowed down to and that we listened to. We completely perverted the glory and honor upon us. And we not only lost our innocence, but we lost something of the glory we shared with God. It is true that every human being maintains some semblance of God's image, but we no longer share in the same glory we once had at the beginning because sin cut off Adam from Eden and from a share in the glory of the pure and uninterrupted fellowship with God. We no longer share the former glory of God we once had. As John Murray says, and I quote, we are destitute, we lack, we fall short of that perfection which is the reflection of the divine perfection and therefore we have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, this doesn't mean there is absolutely no difference between sinners. You and I both know that from a human perspective, you could have a lineup of 10 people. Not everyone is as bad as they could be, and some people are better than others. But the standard is God's righteousness, right? The standard is the righteousness that Jesus procured for us. God does not grade on a curve. The standard does not change. When I was a teenager, I used to participate in the long jump in track and field, and I loved this event. If I told you this morning that after church, we were going to take a field trip, and we're all going to get into our cars, and we're going to drive down to Miami, and I'm going to find a pier, and I'm going to line up all the children of our church on this pier, and I'm going to tell them to run as fast as they can to jump into the ocean, and we're going to see who can jump the furthest in the ocean with the goal being to land your feet in the Bahamas. Well, we could do that. And sure, there would be some kids who would jump further than others. But what is... A few feet compared to 180 plus miles. You see, measured against miles, nobody wins and the results are the same. Everyone falls short of the Bahamas. And in fact, the one who gets the furthest, guess what? Has to swim back the longest. You see, beloved, we are an ocean away from God apart from Christ. And we are not swimming we are sinking. It doesn't matter how far we can jump, how high we can jump, how fast we can run, how good we try to be. We have all sinned. Therefore, the knowledge of 
of sin is within us. We have fallen short of the glory of God and we are sinking very fast. But again, to borrow the wording from verse 22, if there is no distinction when it comes to our saving need, the saving righteousness of Christ, then there's no difference in God meeting that need for those who believe. If we are to be saved, God must do it. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Paul will actually use the word justified for the first time in verse 24. Notice your Bibles. He says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Underline the word redemption. We'll come back to it. The word justified, I mentioned earlier in my introduction, is a legal term belonging to the law courts, which simply means to declare righteous or to pronounce someone in the right or to pronounce someone righteous. Paul has really been explaining the the process whereby man receives, verse 21, the righteousness of God, or verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. And he's been speaking about justification, and now he uses that word justified. It involves a demonstration of faith. Faith on the part of man. Verse 22, for all who believe. But it also involves not just a demonstration of faith on man's part, but a declaration on God's part. It's a legal term. John MacArthur says, and I quote, justification is God's declaration that all the demands of the law are fulfilled on behalf of the believing sinner through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a legal transaction. It's a forensic term, and forensics deal with judicial judgments, official declarations about a person's status. So you could think about it this way. Our status is that of a sinner. And in justification, God changes the status of a sinner to make us into the status of someone who is seen as righteous. It's a declaration. This is not a legal fiction. As Sproul says, justification is that act whereby God judicially declares a person to be righteous in his sight. Or as William Hendrickson says, it is that gracious act of God whereby on the basis solely of Christ's accomplished mediatorial work, he declares the sinner just and the recipient accepts this benefit with a believing heart. So in justification... Condemnation gives way to salvation. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are united to Christ Jesus. So to be justified involves a demonstration of our faith. It involves a declaration legally by God. And therefore, number three, it also involves an imputation. An imputation of Christ's righteousness. As I already said, quoting 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is to say, the sinner's guilt is charged or imputed to Christ on the cross and Christ's righteousness is imputed or charged to the sinner. And later, we're going to see a couple of examples of this in chapter 4. Remember, Paul said in verse 21, The law and the prophets bear witness to this reality. The Old Testament tells us about this saving righteousness. And we'll see that the faith of Abraham resulted in receiving God's righteousness in chapter 4. We see that the faith of David resulted in God's righteousness being imparted or imputed 
to him. Both quoting from the law, Genesis, the Pentateuch, and from the Psalms, the writings. And as I said already, the prophets. Jeremiah 23.6, Jeremiah says, The Lord is my righteousness. Isaiah 53.6, The imputation of our guilt on Christ, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Throughout Scripture and the law and the writings and the prophets, the imputation of Christ's righteousness is spoken about. Now ultimately, God isn't merely interested in saving us by justification. He's also interested in transforming us through sanctification. And those two things, justification and sanctification, should not be separated, but they should be distinguished. And in this context, in verse 24, the focus is dealing with justification. It is true that we've fallen short of the glory of God. And once we are justified and the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts, He will sanctify us and conform us more from one glory to another glory into the image of Jesus Christ. But Paul is not speaking about sanctification. Do not confuse the two in this passage. When believing sinners are tried at the bar of God's justice, Paul is saying they will be acquitted because of Christ's saving work alone, which is appropriated by faith. And please note, justification comes, the middle of verse 24, by His grace as a gift. In other words, it costs you nothing. It's a gift. But Paul is saying it cost Christ everything. It came by His grace, through His work on the cross. So this is not cheap grace. This cost God greatly. The righteousness that the Father requires, the Son became. The Holy Spirit convinces us of, assures in our hearts, and our faith secures. That's the gospel. But notice the language Paul uses to show the cost of this saving righteousness. Verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Very important word there. While justification recalls the law courts, the word redemption recalls the slave market. Apolutroseos is the word for redemption. It was used to describe the release of prisoners of war by payment of a ransom. If you wanted your soldiers back, you had to pay for it. And later, this word redemption came to be used to describe a payment of a price to release any slave. Even in the Old Testament, if someone was under the sentence of death, they could be bought. They could be ransomed or redeemed for a price. And of course, what's the connection with us? We are slaves of sin. We are under the law. We are under sin. We are under the sentence of death. I read earlier in our service, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But Paul's not just making some sort of analogy. This is reality. We are all under the sentence of death and Israel is our example. That word redemption in verse 24, if you find a copy of the Greek Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that word redemption is found throughout to describe Israel's release from captivity. So Paul is saying that the new covenant reality of Christ's redemption was shown in picture form in the Old Testament when Israel was redeemed from Egypt. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Deuteronomy 7, 8, the Bible says, It is because the Lord loves you, Israel, 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. He has redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the Bible speaks about Israel's ransom or redemption. Paul's picking up on that theme and he's saying that Christ is the culmination of that. Christ is the fulfillment of that. In fact, it's not just in Deuteronomy, but it's also in the prophets. Take your Bibles and turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 43. The prophet Isaiah used this theme to speak about the coming Messiah. Chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. There's the word redeemed. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. Chapter 44 and verse number 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest. Every tree for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. Chapter 51 of Isaiah and verse 11. And the ransomed, the redeemed of the Lord, shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. This is Isaiah prophesying about not just Israel returning back to the land after their Chaldean captivity and Assyrian captivity. This is about an everlasting joy that is found in Christ where the redeemed of the Lord will sing for all of eternity. Or chapter 52 and verse 3, For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Chapter 62 and verse 12, And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. You see, Isaiah, as he prophesies about the Messiah, he recognizes that that is where true redemption is found. And so Paul is now saying in Romans 3 that the freedom for which Israel longed has been realized in Christ Jesus. Verse 24, And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from our captivity to sin. We've been set free from our captivity to Satan and to death. We've been delivered from Egypt. We've been delivered from Babylon. This is why Jesus says, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He's picking up on that theme of deliverance or redemption. Paul says in Ephesians 1.7 that in Christ we have redemption through His blood. Paul says in Acts 20 verse 28 that elders are to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood or He purchased with His own blood. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that we are not our own, we have been bought with a price. So redemption means the penalty or the price or the wages for sin, which is death. And Christ paid that price to redeem us. 
And let me just say, Origen, the church father Origen, was right about a lot of things, but he was wrong about this, because Origen taught that the redemption price was paid to Satan. You say, well, that makes sense. Why not? After all, Satan has bound us in prison. Yes, Satan has, but remember, God is the judge, and he has authority over the bailiff. And so when the judge renders the verdict not guilty, and when the judge receives the fine that has been paid, he legally declares the sinner not guilty and imputes the free righteousness of God to all who believe. You see, beloved, it is important to be precise and clear, neat and clean. The ransom price was paid to God because he is the one who was offended. He is the one who has the authority to pronounce us to declare us, to treat us as righteous, to justify us, to treat us just as if we never sinned. And I want to tell you this morning, if God does not grant you that grace, then there is no salvation for you. Your destiny hinges on what the judge says. Not on what Satan says, not on what others accuse you of, not even what your conscience says. Salvation is not about a feeling. It is about a declaration that God makes. And if he's declared you righteous, then say goodbye to Egypt. It's better to wander in the wilderness under the disciplining hand of God, to be with God in the valley, than to be with Pharaoh on the mountain. You remember Moses. Moses was a man of faith. And the author of Hebrews speaks about the faith of Moses. Listen to how the author of Hebrews speaks about Moses' faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Moses was a man of faith. He trusted in the sprinkling of the blood at the Passover. He was delivered from Egypt. He is the paradigm. He is the pattern of faith for all who will be saved. Simple faith in Christ. Moses had it. And as I said, although sanctification flows from justification, please do not confuse those two. Paul is speaking about justification. The Roman Catholic Church confuses this passage because they speak about sanctification and justification as if they are one and the same. Justification is instantaneous. It's a legal declaration, a legal transaction. Sanctification is progressive. It's something the Lord does on us. But He does it after we've already been declared righteous. For example, you may wrong me You may sin against me and come to me and ask for forgiveness and I may forgive you, but I have no power to declare you just. I also have no power to view you 
as anything but who you actually are, which is a sinner. The glory of the gospel is that God doesn't view us that way. We are at the same time righteous and a sinner, but God views us through the lens and through the righteousness of His only begotten Son. And by the way, that is the power of forgiving others. It's when we learn through the gospel to forgive others because God in Christ forgave us, we forgive others. We begin viewing our brothers and sisters as righteous in God's sight. Well, Paul takes us to a third angle from which to view God's saving righteousness. His righteousness revealed, his righteousness required, number three, a righteousness reinforced, verses 25 and 26. Notice your Bibles, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, Paul has chosen to view God's saving righteousness from several different angles. Number one, a righteousness revealed, which taught us about justification in the heavenly court. Number two, a righteousness required, which taught us about redemption from Egypt's court. But now he finishes in verses 25 and 26 by making a critical point about God's saving righteousness because he understands that some may question God's justice in justifying a guilty sinner. So he reinforces the fact that God is just because his wrath has been appeased. A righteousness reinforced which teaches us propitiation at the temple's court. Or at Calvary. Notice, speaking about Christ Jesus, who was mentioned at the end of verse 24, Paul continues, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. We've talked about justification. We've talked about imputation. Now we need to speak about propitiation. Paul is saying here that God put forward Christ's sacrifice in blood. Now some translations will say, Something like God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. And I like that translation because it really captures what God did at the cross. At the appointed juncture in His sovereign timeline, at the fullness of time, in public view, not hidden, what did God do? He shamed His Son on the cross. And what happened at the cross? You say, well, redemption, verse 24. Yes, but Paul's saying also propitiation. Propitiation made the redemption possible. The word propitiation is hilasterion. It's, it's the same Greek word used again in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament to describe the mercy seat. You remember the lid or the cover of the ark of God. It was referred to as a mercy seat. Leviticus 16.2 says that I will appear in the cloud, God says, over the mercy seat. And it was that mercy seat on the day of atonement once a year when the high priest and only the high priest would go into the holy of holies. An animal had been sacrificed and he would sprinkle blood over the mercy seat once a year. This was a liturgical ritual performed by the priest, which points forward to Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying in verse 25 is that at the cross, the fulfillment of this tabernacle and temple activity, the atonement of all atonements, where God's wrath was satisfied, took place. Whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood. All Paul is saying is that what was hidden beyond the veil of the Holy of Holies and the temple courts and the shadows of Old Testament sacrifices is now brought in public view in light of Christ's atonement. Let me quote to you a familiar verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 after a description of the Ark of the Covenant, tells us in verse 5 that above the Ark, above the mercy seat, were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, and of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Of course, it's impossible to speak in detail what exactly the high priest did. We know he sprinkled blood on the Day of Atonement over the mercy seat. We know that much. But he's the only one allowed in there. Have you ever thought about the fact that at times there were two high priests. If one retired, he was sort of high priest emeritus. This was true during the lifetime of Jesus. But never in the training of the high priest could the former high priest take the new high priest into the Holy of Holies to show him how to do it because only one was allowed in there once a year, and it was the official high priest. Corey and I used to enjoy visiting a a museum in Orlando, it's, it's the Holy Land experience. And I refuse to go back there because uh, the charismatics have basically bought it out and I don't want to give them my money. Uh, but there is a marvelous um, display in that museum in which they have the tabernacle sort of set up the way that it would look and the priest goes through all the religious sort of rites and The climax of it is when he enters behind the veil. And when that happens, the lights turn off. A light is shown on that veil so that you can have some idea of what this shadowy figure is doing. You can't really see what he's doing as his arms move around and as the music sort of plays. The reality is we don't really know what happened. And that's the point. Paul is saying that at the cross, Jesus was the temple, Jesus was the priest, Jesus was the sacrifice, and in public view, the veil was pulled back at Calvary for all the world to see. And out of the darkness, God shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He poured out His blood. He satisfied God's demand for sin to be punished on him in the place of his people. And in case you've forgotten, notice verse 25, to be received by faith. That's the only way propitiation is received. That's the only way salvation is received. Paul has mentioned it several times now. Verse 21, verse 22, now verse 25, through faith, faith alone. We are given the glory of God and the righteousness of Christ because the propitiation, the demands have been met. So it's not that all people are saved. This is not a universal atonement. It's only for those who have faith. And why exactly did God's propitiation of His wrath need to be in public view? Well, notice the end of verse 25. This was to show... God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. 
So just understand this. Propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath. 1 Timothy 2.6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. The all meaning Jews and Gentiles alike, but not the all in the sense of all people indiscriminately. His blood was shed, the ransom price was paid. As Peter says, we were ransomed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, spotless and without blemish. And once that atonement was made on the cross, God's wrath was removed, but... What about before the cross? What about in the temple? What about all the Old Testament sacrifices? What about all those days of atonement through hundreds of years? That's what Paul's concerned about in verse 25. Because Paul knows the Old Testament speaks about covering sin, represented by the mercy seat, but what about the forgiving of sin? And Paul says here in verse 25, God set aside full judgment in the Old Testament, notice verse 25, as an act of divine forbearance. That is to say, God put up with sin. He didn't wink at it because he still required the slaughter of animals, the shedding of blood, but he passed over former sins, to borrow the language of verse 25, as a temporary overlooking of judgment. And you say, why did God not just blast everyone into hell? Well, the same reason that He doesn't automatically blast us into hell when we commit sin. He is a divine, forbearing, patient, merciful God. The psalmist says, Yet He, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. He did not destroy them. He restrained His anger often and did not stir up all His wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh. Wow. The only reason God temporarily withheld His judgment was because He was merciful. And you remember what that mercy seat represented, right? It was a covering of the Ark of the Covenant. And what was part of the covenant? The law of God. And what was contained in the covenant? The tablets of stone where God had written with his finger the law of God. And what did Moses do when he came down from the mountain? He threw those tablets of stone down and the law of God was broken. You see, the reason the cloud came over the mercy seat and the reason the priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat was because Contained in that mercy seat was God's broken law that God's people had constantly broken. And the blood was there as a memorial to point forward to Christ who would obey the law of God perfectly, who would be our mercy, who would be our grace through His propitiation. And so God had to sacrifice His Son publicly. This was not a once a year sacrifice. This was a once forever or once for all sacrifice. And Isaiah 52 says that he sprinkled many nations with his blood, Jew and Gentile, all who believe. But again, why? Why did Jesus need this to occur publicly? That is the most important question you can ever ask when studying Scripture. Why? Notice verse 25. This was to show what? God's righteousness. Verse 26 again, it was to show His righteousness. Paul's trying to make the point 
The cross reveals God's righteousness because Jesus was righteous. And because Jesus was righteous and died for the sinner, then the sinner being declared not guilty proves God is still just. He did not brush sin under the rug. He punished sin in His Son. And because the righteous demands of the law were met by Christ, God was just in charging His righteousness to our account. Sin was not forgiven until, as verse 26 says, the present time. That is the age of the new covenant covenant at the cross. So the saving righteousness of God is reinforced here because of propitiation. In public view, on Mount Calvary, near the temple, was the final sacrifice offered. The final ritual of the temple took place outside of the temple, outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And what happened when Christ was crucified? The veil in the temple was torn in two. As if God was saying, Acts 17, the times of ignorance are past, where I only passed over sins. Now I am forgiving sins fully and finally because God is righteous and He's just. And Paul understands someone may call God's justice into question. That His divine forbearance might be viewed as a liability because He didn't actually punish sins in the Old Testament. And Paul says, listen, whatever happened in the Old Testament, whatever was hidden, that was all about a covering. It all pointed forward to what God publicly did for the world to see the greatest and famous event to ever have occurred, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ this once-for-all sacrifice, to propitiate His wrath, for judgment to come crashing down to prove God is just. And that's why Paul says in verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God can take a sinner and declare him righteous while at the same time he's a sinner and God is still just because of propitiation. God's justice satisfied. The demand satisfied. As the psalmist says, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Love and faithfulness meet. That is true in the cross of Calvary. Nobody can accuse God of being unjust. They can only accuse God of being gracious to the guilty, merciful to the miserable. What he did was wholly just because his son suffered in the place of all of his people, all of those looking to Christ in faith. You know, when Moses and Elijah died, or I should say when they entered eternity. Perhaps they thought that at some point they may be kicked out of heaven since their sins were not fully forgiven but only covered. And I like to imagine that once Jesus ascended, they must have been completely relieved. Maybe they went to Christ and said, we've been waiting for you because we saw you were in the tomb And we knew that you needed to be raised from the dead because we are only in heaven on credit. Everything was charged to the account of Christ. He paid the credit card bill. All the sins that were covered were punished in Him. He has redeemed us. He has rescued us. 
He has saved us. The debt has been paid. Why? Because of God's saving righteousness. A righteousness revealed, which teaches us about justification in heaven's court. A righteousness required, which teaches us about redemption from Egypt's court. A righteousness reinforced, which teaches us about propitiation at the temple's court. We've been forgiven because of Christ, and this morning we come to observe the emblems of the Lord's table. But I would urge you that you need to look to Christ in faith if you haven't. Quit trusting in your own works, quit trusting in your own religiosity, quit trusting in your own whatever. God's saving righteousness, God's saving righteousness alone is the only thing that can free us from sin, from hell, from Satan. It's the only thing that can deliver us. And praise God, the price and the wages of sin have been paid through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.